0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code Wondery at BYTE.com. That's BYTE.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Good day, friends and neighbors on this Friday morning, January 21. We welcome you back to the Bill Press Pod and to this week's Reporters Roundtable. Poor Joe Biden seems like he can't win for losing. First, he gets slammed for holding only one news conference since taking office. And then, when he finally did hold another one this week, he got slammed for holding fourth for two long hours, right up there with Fidel Castro. While acknowledging he could have moved faster on COVID testing, Biden made 1 billion home testing kits and three N95 masks per person available to all Americans agreed to break up his Build Back Better plan into bite-sized pieces, and slammed Republicans for being against everything and for nothing. Biden also promised to fight hard for voting rights legislation, but within a couple of hours, that pledge was shot down in the Senate, as Joe Manchin and Kyrsten Sinema stabbed him in the back. Meanwhile, Donald Trump hit a major speed bump, too, when the Supreme Court, including all three of his appointees, rejected his claim of executive privilege for documents related to his actions leading up to and on the day of January 6. Lots going on. So for insights on these and all other news of the week, let's say hello to today's panel, Gabriel De Benedetti. National political correspondent for New York Magazine uh, with a new book on Obama and Biden and their relationship coming out soon. Hello, Gabe. Hey, Bill. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Lauren Burke, news writer for Black Press USA and host of the Burke File podcast. Hi, Lauren.
0: How are you doing, Bill?
1: Okay. Good to have you here. And Scott Wong, well, uh, he's been... Our guest, uh, often as congressional correspondent for The Hill, now making the big move announced just yesterday to become senior congressional correspondent for NBC News. Congratulations, Scott.
2: Well, thank you, Bill. And and I owe a lot to you, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: yeah, I, I was there fighting for you to get that job, Scott.
2: <laughs> no,
1: it's going to be great to have you there. So thank you all Well, um, there's so many aspects to Biden's news conference this week, Uh, and we get into some of the specific issues. It did go on for just about two hours where he, he let reporters ask any question they want as long as they want. Before we get into the specific issues, Gabe, start us off in general. How do you think he did?
3: uh with the press conference or with the presidency with, i guess with these the are two different ca- questions let's start with yes. the press conference yeah 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 the presidency is not over yet the press conference i think just ended uh <laughs> it may still the, be going uh, on <laughs> sure I, well first let me be very clear that i am not going to be one of these people complaining about how long it went i think that you know in general i'm all for presidents uh being very accessible to the news media uh the last few have not been particularly accessible though those are you know we should not compare the way that donald trump treated the media to the way that biden does uh, which is essentially ignoring it for the most part that's biden uh, i think he did fine um he obviously made some mistakes that are fairly significant and i assume we'll talk about those for example the way he talked about the potential russian invasion of ukraine that was a big mistake um and his white house essentially uh, acknowledged it but i think the important big picture thing here was uh from Biden's perspective, at least, trying to prove that he was reframing some aspects of his presidency. Um, You saw him go after Republicans in much starker terms than he has been doing, uh, largely because for about a year now, he has essentially been insisting he could win over Republicans on a number of his big issues, um, which has proven over and over again to not be true. and, And, you know, many of us didn't think it was going to be true to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but other than that, you know, one, of, I think it's undoubtable, undeniable that one of the reasons that he went on for so long was that there have been misinformation campaigns, but also just whispers about, well, you know, he's old. Uh, does he not talk to the press because he's you know not up to you know dealing with tough questions anymore? Well, he stood there longer than either obama or trump ever did and did the job uh so in that very basic sense yeah he he did a good job but you know do i think that he reset his presidency with his press conference of course not
1: so lauren you're an average american if there is such a thing right watching at home uh you got the cable on the president of the united states comes on you're not one of the inside the belt way people like us who you know examine everything what in general in general what you think?
0: I mean, I think that given the length of it, that would impress anybody, quite frankly, to stand up there for two hours, almost two hours, and take any question. Uh, you know, the president presents as a normal person that is in great contrast to what we saw for the last four years. I think people were looking for that type of calm personality, but at the same time, uh, he himself acknowledged that he underestimated the fact that logic and reason does not work in the political world that we live in today. (laughs) You know, and in fact, this misinformation problem is really, should be top of mind for this president. It's an extremely hard thing to combat. But in fact, you know, so many people are driven by misinformation and this idea that somehow the election was stolen. And that falsity out there is always the backdrop of everything that he does. So, he has to you know he's forced to up his game because of that i think that the man that we saw on the anniversary standing in Statuary hall on january 6 2022 is the guy that he has to be moving forward but i'm not sure that that's the personality he's going to bring moving forward so i think the average person watching him would think okay you know this is this is fine but from, from a political perspective i think he's losing and i don't think you can mm-hmm. i don't think you d- deny that
1: mm-hmm. so scott i've been to many of these Presidential news conferences, particularly under Obama and some under Trump. Um, this was, in effect, a reporter's dream, though, wasn't it, right? Everybody everybody in that room got to ask a question.
2: <laughs> I think nearly everyone got a question. I think uh, one of my colleagues who was keeping track counted that 24 out of 30 reporters got to ask wow. questions. Uh, you said it, it a reporter's dream and, and we all hope that there are many more press conferences <laughs> like this. But I think it also highlighted, you know, what, what Gabe and, and Lauren were saying was that this has been a concern of, of the White House, of people in Biden's inner circle about, you know, why we haven't seen more Biden uh you know out on the campaign trail, out out in, in uh you know, out in, in various states and cities more. And, and in press conferences like these, because he does tend to make these gaffes. Anyone who's followed him over his decades-long career knows about those infamous gaffes, and and we saw uh, several of them in this news conference that you know nearly created an international crisis. And, you <laughs> right. Know, that they're still you know thirty-six hours later trying to clean this up, and so. Um, But my colleagues, uh, Amy Parnes and and Morgan Chalfin, who cover the White House and who were writing about that press conference, wrote that this was Biden saying to his critics, you know, come at me, bring it on. You want to question uh, whether Mm -hmm. I have the stamina and the wherewithal to do this job? You think I'm too old? Well, you know, I can stand here and hold a record long news conference. I would love to see a lot more of these.
1: He, uh, yeah, The a- a- Amy and Morgan have a good piece on that in The uh, Hill this morning. Uh, just just before we move on, Scott, you, you do news conferences for a living, just so that all of our listeners understand, uh, whether it's Nancy Pelosi or Kevin McCarthy or any of them, uh, for just about every news conference, there's a time when it's over, and you know it's over because people say it's over, right?
2: <laughs> Usually there are aides, uh, you yeah. know. By Nancy Pelosi's side or Kevin McCarthy's side, yelling "last question, last <laughs> right, question," right, right. <laughs> and uh, you know, and yeah. that was the case yesterday when I when I was with Nancy Pelosi and was trying to get a question in on on uh, COVID relief, and uh, the aide was yelling "last question," and she's rushing off. Uh, to her office. And so, yeah, yeah. definitely, yeah. Uh, you know, Biden, yeah. Biden was in control here and, and uh, he, wa- he went as long as he wanted to go. And nobody, once he had that stage and command of that stage, nobody could really tell him what to do. And I remember the days when
1: Helen Thomas, the legendary Helen Thomas, sat right in front of the, of the president. And at a given time, Helen Thomas spoke up and said, thank you, Mr. President, (laughs) and it was over, (laughs) and that was all Uh, prearranged. A couple of you have mentioned COVID. So, Gabe, the president had to start there. That's still the overwhelming issue, and he said, uh, here's the president, uh, as he framed it, we've made a lot of progress, but boy, we have a lot of work still to do. Here he is. I'm not going to give up and accept things as they are now. Some people may call what's happening now the new normal. I call it a job not yet finished. It will get better. We're moving toward a time when COVID 19 won't disrupt our daily lives. Do you make the case, Gabe, on COVID?
3: I don't know if he has entirely made the case yet. Certainly, that's, you know, people are still feeling the effects of this in very unequal ways all around the country. Made the case that
1: he's made a lot of progress.
3: Right, right. Well, where where I'm going with this, I think, and where he's going with this is that he understands that he needs to reframe the way he's talking about it because a, a lot of progress has been made. But he uh, came into office promising – significant change uh, about the pandemic. He essentially promised this thing will be over um, at some point. He didn't pretend to have all the answers, but he certainly said, we, we got to follow the science. We're going to spend a lot of money on this. We're going to be responsible, and then you can go back to normal. Um, and that hasn't happened for vast swaths of the country. Um, and this is a way of saying, listen, I understand your frustration, people. Um, I'm not pretending that this thing is over. I understand you're still having some trouble here. But he did, you know, he did argue that things are getting better and that, you know, he seemed to bristle a few times at why at the negativity that, that he seemed to impute from a lot of the questions. And that's really a theme that I certainly have picked up from people around the White House for quite some time. Not surprising at all. Of course, people are defensive about this. Uh, there's no question that at the end of the day, COVID is the issue that is going to, you know, Paint one way or the other, the way that we remember the Biden administration, or at least the first year or two.
1: No doubt. No doubt. Lauren, I was surprised that the president really on the issue of schools, which is maybe the one that hits most people right directly, most directly. Uh, he was re- resolute about keeping schools open.
0: The, the idea that, you know, we could go back to what we were doing in terms of closing schools, that obviously it caused a domino effect for anybody who has kids in school. They have to, you know, stay home and take care of that. So now everybody, uh, you know, the Democrats have sort of switched over to the idea, OK, we've got to keep everybody in school. I mean, I, I think that the president just generally, he said it out there. He, he said something to the effect of, you know, I have... Had to deal with more problems than, than anyone else in terms of the big problems he's had to face, including, of course, uh, a party, a group of people trying to overthrow his government before he even took office. But when you have right. to, uh, you know, vaccinate 200 million people, and then, you know, come into office, of course, and pass a, a 1.9 trillion dollar bill. That, by the way, had a bunch of money in it to make sure that, you know, to to help, you know, people keep keep their kids in school and help the school districts keep kids in school. And nobody really notices that. And of course, the White House doesn't really market it correctly, in my view. Uh, That's a problem. And we're sitting in a situation where we just had 800,000 people, we're nearing a million people dying of COVID. And this president, of course, uh, has had to deal with the back end of Donald Trump really doing close to nothing on it and trying to act like it was no big deal. So I'm not sure why the president has not uh, emphasized those points more. Uh, he's kind of mm-hmm. kind of has sort of this low key personality out there when it comes to these issues. I think that that doesn't work. I don't think it's effective. And quite frankly, I think his comms people are failing him with regard to just outlining what he has done and what they have done, which is really tremendous. And, and it just doesn't quite get there for some reason.
1: Yeah, he did indicate that they, he personally wants, knows he has to do a better job at that and that he's going mm-hmm. to spend more time at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott, the other big uh, surprise, maybe surprise that we got out of the news conference when the president said, yeah, I agree, this Build Back Better is not gonna, is not going to float the way it is. We're going to have to uh, chop it apart and get out of it what we can and then come back and fight for more the next time. Um, That was a uh, sort of down-to-earth, pragmatic way of approaching this, Scott. uh, Surprise you?
2: No, no. I mean, I think that has been the thinking on Capitol Hill uh, for a while now, ever since Joe Manchin last month came out and said, I will not be in support of the $2 trillion bill that passed the House. The the language that the president used was <clears throat> interesting and and has confused a lot of folks in the media and uh, folks on Capitol Hill. He said we need to to pass try to pass big chunks of this package, right? right. Uh, and chunks, uh, you know, <laughs> means different things to different people. So some people <laughs> interpreted that as you know, we're we're going to hold a series of votes. We're going to break this big package apart into chunks. We're going to pass, you know, hold a series of votes on the various aspects. Well, what, you, you know, in talking to a lot of Democrats and, and listening to the White House yesterday, that's not exactly what he was saying. Bi- Biden was saying we need to basically scale this down to a size that is manageable for to, to win over the support of one guy on Capitol Hill. And that's senator joe manchin of west virginia the you know manchin who we've been talking about for months and months and months and continues to be at the center of the conversation and really uh at the center of of whether or not biden's domestic and economic agenda fails or succeeds uh
1: on the front page of the new york times today article by uh, uh, about ed markey in massachusetts saying the, the one thing that's got to go and we have to i mean has to stay and we have to move on, is climate change. Is that something you, uh, Democrats will have the votes for in the Senate, do you think?
2: Well, that's something that Joe Manchin has expressed support for in the past. Uh, this package that was in the House, about $500 billion worth of uh, programs to combat climate change, that's something that Manchin has voiced support for. Biden pointed that out in the press conference. Uh, other things that Manchin has supported in the past... Uh, the deal negotiated by Kirsten Cinema, his centrist uh, colleague and ally, uh, to lower prescription drug prices—that's uh, something mm-hmm. they believe they can get Mansion uh, to sign off on. And so there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of moving parts here. The, the one, the one uh, n- bit of news that happened yesterday was that Mansion was asked by reporters what he thought about, um, you know, scaling down the package, what what he could support. And he said, we need to start over. We need a clean sheet of paper. And so after, you know, five, six, seven months of negotiating and negotiating, now Manchin says, let's go back to the drawing board and start, start, (laughs) you know, with a clean sheet of paper. That's frustrating a lot of Democrats who believe time is not on their hands. Right.
1: You know, Gabe, the president in talking about, okay, Yeah, I did say I wanted to get some big things done. And then people say, well, you've had a whole year. You didn't get everything you wanted done. Uh, And Biden did point out, um, you know, this is a different kind of Senate than it was when he was in the Senate uh, years ago and um, a different brand of Republicans, I guess, and a party that um, is really beholden to one man. Here's the way the president put it. Did you ever think that one man out of office could intimidate an entire party? I've had five Republican senators who've told me that they agree with whatever I'm talking about for them to do. But Joe, if I do it, I'm going to defeat it in the primary. Gabe, but politics, well, not politics aside, but partisanship maybe aside, don't, isn't it a pretty compelling point that when... Every single Republican is united in voting no against anything Biden wants. It's hard to get things done. Uh, It is a compelling point. What's not compelling
3: is the idea that he should be surprised by it at all. (laughs) I um, am old enough to remember 2009. And you know who else is? Joe Biden. Uh, He, you know, 2009 through all the Obama years, this was the whole story. Everything that they tried to do, there was, you know, full on, full on opposition. And, And by the way. Uh, I you know, was recently re- rereading some coverage, um, talking to some folks also who were involved with trying to pass the initial uh, stimulus that the Obama administration put through in early 2009 to combat the Great Recession and the financial crisis at the time. Um, and Joe Biden, of course, was charged with finding votes to make sure that that could get through the Senate. And a number of Republican senators said to him at the time, as he talked about out loud, Joe, I like you. I like this, but I can't go for it because I'm going to get primary. So. He talked about this openly in 2009, and the idea Uh that this is a surprise is – it's a bit much. That said, I understand that he, politically speaking, has to say if he does want to get even the possibility of anyone cooperating, uh, and not just Republicans but potentially even some conservative Democrats, he has to say, well, we're going to try and get bipartisan support on this stuff. But is he actually surprised by it? If so – I think a lot of people in Washington would agree, especially on Capitol Hill. Come on, man, you got to pay more attention than this. It's it's not realistic at all to think that you're going to get Republicans to go along. All that said, now all that said, I I think it's Mm -hmm. fair for him to be frustrated that he doesn't get enough credit for the massive COVID relief bill that they passed early on, the infrastructure bill that they already passed. I mean, this is significant, significant government spending and top liberal priorities involved in some of these things um, that, you know, a number of other Democratic presidents would be thrilled to have passed at this point. But it is true also that he did come into office promising sort of transformational uh, transformational spending changes. Uh, and that hasn't happened yet. But But what you did see, and I alluded to this earlier, is he seems to be willing now to put a little bit of this more on Republicans, which a lot of Democrats have been suggesting. Because if the focus is always on Joe Manchin, which of course it should be, because he's the one he and Kirsten Cinema holding a lot of this up um, that really lets a lot of the Republicans off the hook and of course the, the reality is that Republicans are completely and utterly in opposition to everything he's doing um, or at least everything that gets that gets real media attention
1: and and Laura the Laura the president also spent a lot of time of course on the issue of voting rights came up in the Senate uh, the following day uh, here is Senator Warnick from Georgia uh, again sort of. On the day, Martin Luther King Day, telling these Republicans, you can't have it both ways. You can't be out there praising Martin Luther King and then voting against everything he stood for. I thought a very powerful statement. Here's the good senator from Georgia. I will not sit quietly while some make Dr. King a victim of identity theft. You do not get to offer praises and plaudits in memory of Dr. King and then marshal the same kinds of states' rights arguments that were used against Dr. King and against the civil rights movement. Uh, and yet, Lauren, there are some African-Americans, some from Georgia, some from South Carolina, who blame Joe Biden for not getting voting rights passed.
0: Yeah, well, I think their timing and their expectation setting was totally off. I mean, it is very unusual to see a president and see the leaders of a party bring a bill to the floor, knowing for a fact that the bill is going to fail. That's what they did. And they appeared to have done that because of pressure from, obviously, the voting rights activists who wanted to see a vote, but their timing is off. I mean, if you remember uh, last year when the uh, they were impeaching Trump uh, during that trial. There were eight Republicans who voted for conviction. It was a different moment because the Capitol had just been attacked, and that was probably the moment where voting rights probably should have happened somewhere in there. And that's what everyone was arguing at the time. The mm-hmm. White House wanted to do Build Back Better first. They did Build Back, but you know, so they they wanted to do infrastructure, American Rescue first. That that's understandable. Obviously, we're dealing with COVID, but at the same time. Uh, I think the president Uh, You know, I just think he's operating, and to jump off a little of what uh, Gabe referred to, he's operating on this notion that this is the Senate of the 1990s, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and is not the Senate of the 1990s. Uh, You know, he's operating on this idea he can convert people. There's five people who've told me, just as you said, Bill, that they would vote for this or they'd be primaried. Well, who are those five people? Who are those five magical people? We heard Manchin say that, oh, I could get 10 people to vote for my voting rights, Bill. No, he can't. He can't do that that. That's not the political world that we live in right now. And I don't think the president has caught up to that. There's a lot of Neville Chamberlain in this president and not enough Churchill and not enough LBJ in this president. He seems to think that people will just come along and I'm an optimist and unity. When you see a political party systematically change the voting laws across the country in various states and have sort of an organized plan to do that strategically in states where we see elections coming up, like Georgia, for example, and Texas, you have to have a counter reaction to that. And Biden has not had that counter reaction. He hasn't even come close. So, you know, they lost the vote. They knew they were going to lose the vote. And, and this is where they stand now. Well, on that point,
1: Scott, um, and you're the insider here on, covering Congress, there are a lot of people who said, why did Chuck Schumer go ahead and even hold this vote knowing they were going to lose it. What's your take on that?
2: Well, I think Lauren alluded to it. Uh, what other choice did they have uh, you know, to, to appease uh, the left, the voting rights activists, the African-American community? Uh, you know, They needed to, to do something. They could, inaction, would not have been uh, possible if you're Chuck Schumer and you're the Democrats and you're Joe Biden. And uh we, you know, and now we're seeing the frustration. We, you know, I was with uh the the black caucus members, Joyce Beatty, the chairwoman, and James Clyburn as they made their walk or their procession uh from the house side to the through the Capitol Rotunda to the doors of the US Senate the other day. Uh and the language that they were using was uh, you know, you could tell they were fired up. Um, you know, Joyce Beatty was Quoting MLK, basically saying those who uh, oppose voting rights protections are evil, and those who silently stand by uh, voting rights while voting rights are under attack are cooperating with evil. You know, they're saying these things at the steps of, of the United States Senate, um, and so there's there's incredible frustration uh, and anger uh, that that nothing is being done, and so Chuck Schumer had to demonstrate. Uh, to these activists that they were trying to do something and by holding these series of votes on uh, the voting rights bills and also on changes to the filibuster, which also failed, Schumer was able to demonstrate where the uh, where the hangup lies right where where the the opposition lies and and it lies not only with uh, you know the fifty. Republican senators, but also the two members in his party who are unwilling to change the filibuster, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, now you're hearing all sorts of, of chatter uh, from the left about whether or not Sinema should be primaried, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when she's up for election in a couple years.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'd just like to point out editorial comment maybe uh, on this issue. Carl Hulse, a great uh, congressional reporter for the New York Times, has a uh, big piece in the New York Times this morning The headline of which is, and he interviewed Chuck Schumer after the vote, uh, the headline is proud to pick a fight that couldn't be won. Hmm. Um, uh, Before we move on and take a break, Lauren, just to wrap this uh, uh, issue of voting rights, our discussion of that, uh, Mitch McConnell uh, (laughs) sort of illustrating uh, the, uh, the, the line between the two parties here on this issue. Basically said yesterday, uh, something that stunned me, that like, what's the big problem? Anyhow, here he is. Well, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. So, Lauren, what are you complaining about?
0: (laughs) Well, what we're complaining about is something that Senator Cory Booker alluded to, which is that this this, uh, rollback in the States with... uh, a lot of these laws that are making it tougher to vote is just reminiscent of uh, the 1960s, 1950s. I mean, when when you think about the fact that in 1982, Strom Thurmond and John Stennis and Robert Byrd voted for the voting rights authorization, you can't get one Republican to do that yeah. now. It's a pretty incredible statement to make. Uh, and of course, Mitch McConnell yeah. was one of those people who voted for it, which the president right. referred to in his press conference. But again, president lives in some sort of 1990s, 1980s version of the Senate still. And Mitch McConnell lives in the world that it is today, as does Donald Trump and everybody else. And until the Democratic Party sort of catches up to that notion, they're always going to get beat politically.
1: But also the idea that African-American voters are not especially targeted by these voting laws that's happening in the states and cutting back on Sunday voting and early voting and all of that, the idea that that doesn't particularly impact African American voters is just absolutely false. Uh, let's take, exactly. a quick, take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. There's some other stuff. Donald Trump got a little hot water this week. Let's talk about that and more with our panel: uh, Gabe De Benedetti from the New York Magazine, Lauren Burke, Black Press USA, and Scott Wong, uh, uh, in between the Hill and NBC News. We'll be right back here on the Bill Press Pod. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, those good men and women of the UFCW, under President Mark Perone, those who serve us and take care of us at our big retail grocery stores, uh, our big shopping centers, meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants and cannabis plants across the country. We salute them for taking good care of us as we go about our way and do our shopping. Uh, uh weekends and weekdays and we thank them for their good work and their support of the bill press pod check out their website at ufcw.org
0: man that sunset is gorgeous grill patio sunset hard to get better than that unless you're
1: browsing carvana's inventory while you soak it all in
2: oh burger time
1: Back. Today's roundtable, wrapping things up here with a little bit of other news of the week. Joining us, Scott Wong, soon to be, if not already, senior congressional correspondent for NBC News. When do you start,
2: Scott, the new job? Well, in fact, today is my last day at the at Hill for right. seven years. Uh, I'm going to be taking a, a couple weeks uh, between right. jobs, but I start on February 7th. So I, I will be back on Capitol Hill uh, very soon. All right.
1: We'll be looking for you there. Lauren Burke is news writer for Black Press USA and host of the Burke File podcast, Gabriel DeBenedetti, national political correspondent for NBC, for New York Magazine. I'm sorry. So, Gabe, the Supreme Court, by an eight to one decision to, uh, this week, told Donald Trump, no, you cannot assert executive privilege and keep your documents away from the January 6th Select Committee this is this is a big big uh, setback for Donald Trump, right?
3: Yeah, even if it was treated in the moment as uh, you know story number four hundred and twenty five of this massive news week. <laughs> <Right>. um, yeah. <laughs> y- yes. Absolutely. Uh, it. What didn't come as a huge surprise, um, but it was nonetheless a very significant move, um, and it essentially means that the uh, you know the investigation into the gen- what happened on January sixth will uh, reach the communications of of the president and those around him um, in a way that he was trying to block um, for a number of fairly obvious reasons and that, you know, people around him have tried to have tried to block. It's unclear to me still um, the degree of cooperation that this will force from people who are around him within the administration. Um, Certainly I don't think you're going to see more voluntary quote unquote voluntary um, uh, people offering up their, their, their testimony or anything like that, but this may shake loose, a lot more information about what was going on within the administration, which is just a reminder that this investigation is absolutely ongoing and that it's not just about the people who were physically within the building on January 6th, but that the, you know, the the highest levels of the Trump administration could be implicated. Uh, The legal ramifications are obviously not yet clear, and this investigation is going to be going on for quite some time. It is, however, absolutely not what Donald Trump wants to be talking about these days as he acts like this president in exile trying to keep control successfully of the Republican Party and obviously trying to mount a political comeback. This is not what he wants to be talking about.
1: Uh, Does this have any impact, Scott, on members that you talk to in terms of standing up uh, for Donald Trump's big lie that he won in 2020 and making that kind of the heart of the uh, midterm elections?
2: No, in fact, uh, <laughs> Republicans. No, nobody. Nobody on Capitol Hill, at least among Republicans, are talking about uh, January 6. You know, other other than perhaps Matt Gates and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are sort of relishing the fight. I think, Repu- for the most part, at least among House Republicans, you know, they're enjoying uh, not being asked on that daily basis about you know the latest Trump tweet or. Uh, you know, or development. Uh, I think they've gotten a little bit of a reprieve from, from reporters lately, although a number of them, including Jim Jordan and and uh, others in the Freedom Caucus, are sort of in the spotlight, right? I mean, the big question right now is is whether or not the January 6th committee, um, you know, can can compel testimony in some way of, of some of these Freedom Caucus members that were in close, close coordination with President Trump and in communication with President Trump and, and people like Mark Meadows the his chief of staff in the mm-hmm. days leading up to January 6th and, and on that day uh, and so you know and there's just there's just so many developments that have ha- occurred and so many developments yet to come and as Gabe pointed out, there's still so much information that we are learning day by day that the committee is is moving quickly. I mean they're moving as fast as they can Ivanka Trump, Uh, They sent out an email, uh, a request to her this week seeking her voluntary cooperation about her conversations with her father on January 6th. Uh, They're still seeking cooperation from Kevin McCarthy, who has said he won't cooperate with the committee. Uh, Jamie Raskin this week um, said that he expects more conspiracy charges among some of the people that were involved in the attack, including you know, people mm-hmm. like the three percenters and, uh, you know, QAnon, the QAnon network. And so there's there's just so many directions that this investigation is heading. Uh, and and we're we're learning something new almost on a daily basis at this point.
1: Right. Uh, Lauren, the other uh, Trump related news this week that caught my attention is um Maybe nobody knows, but he actually held a rally. Right. In Arizona last Saturday night. This was the post the rally that he didn't hold his news conference on January 6th. Instead, he said he was going to have these great big things to say on, on, uh, on whatever the January 15th was it, the date? Uh, right. Last Saturday. Right. It was like crickets. I didn't see any news coverage. I don't know whether anybody other than Newsmax carried it live.
0: Um, you're right. Nobody covered it. It was interesting because that morning, you know, Glenn Youngkin was sworn in yes. as the 74th governor of Virginia and talked about how we had to get away from divisive politics. And then, um, you know, Trump that evening, no one really saw it. No one yet to sort of seek it out. I, so I sought it out. And Trump that evening is doing divisive politics. So it's an interesting contrast for the party and just that. But you're right. It wasn't, it, it was not noticed very much other than the one quote about how the vaccine is being kept from white people. That was probably the only little clip that that made it onto Twitter pretty well. But, but you're right, it wasn't covered.
1: Yeah, uh, which I think s- says something about uh, the declining interest in Donald Trump's uh, uh, repeated lies. But maybe that's just wishful thinking on my part. Okay, uh, I know I'm going to be accused of bearing the lead here because we haven't talked about Ukraine. So let me just end by asking each of you Uh, Your take on what's happening there, what do you expect to happen, and how well Biden has handled it. Gabe, start with you.
3: (laughs) Uh, Nice light topic to to finish things up. Um, (laughs) I I refuse to get into the game of predicting uh, wars. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I think everyone agrees at this point that the president misspoke pretty badly when he referred right. to the possibility of a minor incursion during his press conference. Um, the Ukrainian government, which of course has liked Joe Biden for quite some time, he's had very strong ties uh, there ever since his work in the region um, in the Obama yeah. administration, pushed back and said there's no such thing yeah. as a minor incursion. Um, it seems clear that Russia is preparing to do something on the, you know, in the way of an invasion. Um, I think no one knows exactly what that is going to look like. And uh, everyone in Europe seems mightily freaked out by the possibility, as it seems like they should be. Right. Lauren?
0: I think that Vladimir, Vladimir Putin is looking to uh, be more aggressive, obviously, and with Biden and and frankly, you know, bring back the days of the old Soviet Union or something. And I think Biden has got to do well here. I mean, he's known as the guy who has been doing foreign policy his entire Senate career. Uh, Obviously, Afghanistan did not go smoothly. So he's got to do well on this. And coming out the gate, we're not seeing that. So it's a little bit, I would say, scary to watch. But uh, to make a prediction, yeah, there's obviously, I think it's obvious there's going to be a conflict. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a major distraction for this president on top of everything else he's dealing with.
1: Uh, And Scott, uh, we have to remember, right, that under Barack Obama, Vladimir Putin not only invaded Crimea he seized Crimea uh which was part of Ukraine and got away with it uh given that background uh what can we expect here
2: I mean clearly Putin is playing chess with Biden he's he's seeing uh you know how how far he can push it uh, and, and he believes he can push it pretty far, given, given the, the uh, military buildup on the border there. Uh, just this morning, Secretary of State Blinken met with the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov in Geneva. And Lavrov was asked by reporters if an invasion is imminent, as Biden had said at his press conference. And Lavrov replied, well, not unless the United States has better intelligence than Russia. Uh, Clearly, you know, Russia has been known to play games and and is doing so uh, with our top leaders here uh, in in a very significant and and scary way. And so, uh, you know, it it just doesn't look good at this point.
1: Indeed, indeed. Well, we'll see how that plays out and the rest. And we thank our panelists for joining us today and their insights in the news of the week. Uh, But we don't let you go without asking you, What caught your attention this week? Your favorite story of the week made you stop and smile or frown or scratch your head? Lauren, let's start with you.
0: Uh, You know what got my attention? Eric Wemple, who is the media reporter over at The Washington Post. Good
1: job, too. Uh,
0: Yeah, he does a very good job. He wrote a piece on what the media did not report with regard to the Andrew Cuomo saga. And I was really surprised to see that piece because- uh, that is not something that generally <laughs> happens. And one of the things that he brought up is that one of Cuomo's first accusers had a apparently a fabricated allegation in another case that was in a court case, uh, something that Michael Tracy had apparently brought up. But anyway, Eric Wemple wrote in detail about what the media did not report. He spoke, of course, to two reporters of the New York Times about it and the Times Union in Albany about why they didn't report uh, certain facts around the Cuomo case. I thought that was an interesting article. I thought that was a rare article <laughs> to see. Yeah, and, right. and so that's what caught my attention. Uh,
1: by the way, on top of that, I saw an article in the New York times, maybe this morning that Cuomo still has $16 million in the right. bag. <laughs> right. So he's, uh, maybe out of office, but certainly not out of money. Um, you're from New York. Gabe, what was your favorite story of the week?
3: <laughs> what a, what an intro there? Uh, yeah. All right, well I'll, st- I'll, I'll start by saying um, that we'll have to uh, we'll have to postpone my hoped for Novak Djokovic discussion hour until next time I'm on. But <laughs> okay. um, I w- instead want to talk very briefly about a tweet actually that uh, that I saw the other day, um, and I'll quote it here. Um, it was a tweet from. A professor of uh, legal studies and business ethics at Wharton, the uh, business school, and her name is Nina Strominger. Uh, And I'm going to quote now. It said, I asked Wharton students what they thought the average American worker makes per year, and 25% Mm. of them thought it was over six figures. One of them thought it was 800,000. Really not sure what to make of this. The real number is 45,000. Uh, and what is interesting to me is of course the detachment from reality there, but really what I wanted to just briefly talk about or think about at least is the real, um, reaction here. And the reaction has been such a Rorschach test, I think of how people view, uh, business schools, but also modern American capitalism, Twitter, uh, you know, some people say this is just about filter bubbles. Some people say this is about, you know, inequality. Obviously that's true. Um, Anyway, I just have found the discussion around this initial pro- provocation very interesting, um, and uh, it really made you think about how people think about this country, uh, even within
1: it. It's really stunning, and it reminds me of that New York New York Times editorial board question to candidates running for mayor of New York last year about what, a, That's right. what you could buy a house for in the Bronx or something, and the answer was a hundred thousand dollars, maybe. Insane. Yeah, right. how out of touch with reality some people are. I guess maybe too many people are. How about you, Scott? What uh, stopped you in your tracks?
2: Uh, this morning, a headline from the New York Times stopped me in my tracks, and I'm going to take it in a completely different direction. Japan's monkey queen faces <laughs> challenge to her reign, mating season, and a potential love triangle. Uh, <laughs> I haven't gotten to the whole thing yet, but uh, I'm definitely going to read the full article after (laughs) we wrap up here. This is nine-year-old Yakai who presides over a a troop of 677 monkeys in Japan uh, who violently overthrew her alpha male of her troop to become the first female leader in the sanctuary's 70-year history. Now she has a threat to her reign because she's engaged in a love triangle with oh. two of the male monkeys. Uh, anyways, you know, amazing that uh, this Japan monkey population <laughs> can have a, a first female president before the United States of America.
1: <laughs> Good point, and not surprisingly, though, that there's a, if there's politics, there's a sex scandal involved, right? I guess. <laughs> 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 uh, well. Um, My favorite story of the week uh, is actually something that uh, we were uh, talking a little bit about before we actually started uh, taping this podcast, Uh, and that is, I want to say hats off and a big salute to television reporter Tori Yurge from WSAZ-TV in West Virginia, who was on the air, we all saw this video, on the air giving a report. Uh, on the evening news about icy road conditions in and around Dunbar, West Virginia. And she, the anchor throws to her, she starts her her report, and she gets hit by a car. Uh, you can see it. i, I got to go watch this video. And she says right away, uh, I just, oh, my God, I just got hit by a car. But that's okay. I'm okay, Tim. <laughs> and then she continues to give her report. You've all seen it. The woman, the driver gets out of the car and comes over, and she interrupts and says, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay. It's so sweet of you to ask. Yeah, I'm fine. And then she goes on and gives a report. What a trooper. And it was her last week on the job. I hope they gave her, uh, give her a great send-off there in West Virginia. She made us all proud of, man. As a reporter, right? Can't let anything interrupt what you're doing.
3: A absolute testament to the uh, power and ingenuity of of local reporters everywhere, but especially her. That was amazing
1: yeah lauren. nothing phased her right
0: nothing, and you know it's it's another example of uh of you know sending reporters out alone to do their stand ups alone, yeah, yeah, yeah. alone and that's you know what can happen so that that was it was amazing and I'm glad she's all right
1: uh and Scott as a soon to be t v reporter. This is a <laughs> this is a lesson to you. You got to be prepared for everything, man.
2: Hey, I got my start in local news writing for, for tiny news local newspapers in the San Francisco Bay Area. So that that's where the, the real journalism happens. Well, good for her. I would hope at the White House
1: Correspondents' Dinner this year that they would invite her in and give her a special special award because she uh, she made us all proud for uh, for her her great work and uh, quick thinking there. And that's it for today's podcast. Thank you so much, Gabriel De Benedetti. Thank you, Lauren Burke. Thank you, Scott Wong. Uh, and thanks to all of you for listening. As we let you go, I want to remind you uh, that we'll be back on Tuesday with uh, next week's interview, Jonathan Alter, great columnist, um, best-selling author. You see him a lot on MSNBC talking local politics. Uh, and he's written a very provocative article we're going to talk to him about. Uh, comparing Joe Biden to Jimmy Carter, and um, we'll see who comes out better in that, in that comparison uh, Tuesday's conversation with Jonathan Alter. That's next. Meanwhile, have a good weekend. Take care of yourselves. Wear that N95 mask, and we'll see you back on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.